0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We're in Luke chapter 16 as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled, How Jesus Told Stories to Shape Our Minds. If you're following along in the book of Luke, in Luke 15, Jesus has just told three of these glorious parables. The lost sheep, where the shepherd goes and finds him and rejoice when the lost sheep is found. The lost coin, where the woman goes and searches for the coin and finds it. And there's great rejoicing And the lost son, that uh, parable that we call the prodigal son, where the wayward son comes back home and the father runs and meets him and rejoices. And there's a party and there are these great pictures of God rejoicing over sinners who repent and come back to him. And then after these glorious parables, we keep reading in Luke 16, and then there's the parable of the shrewd manager that nobody really knows what to do with. If you read the experts, the commentators, here's Leon Morris, a great commentator uh, in Australia. He writes of this parable, this is notoriously one of the most difficult parables to interpret. The root problem is the commendation of the steward who is so plainly dishonest. Or another commentator that I love to read, Kenneth Bailey lived in the Middle East for many years, and he's very helpful in understanding the culture of that part of the world. He writes this about this parable. The parable of the unjust steward has always been disturbing. Preachers, interpreters, and teachers of the Bible often avoid it like the plague. Maybe we should just go ahead and play that uh, cue the video for Operation Christmas Child again. Superficially, the parable appears to present a story of a steward who cheats his master and is commended by Jesus for being a liar and a thief. In the 4th century, Julian, the apostate, used this parable as a primary text claiming that the parable taught Jesus' followers to be liars and thieves, and that noble Romans should reject all such corrupting influences. So what do we do with Luke 16? Well, we're not going to avoid it. We're going to keep going in the scripture and look at it verse by verse. So let me read this parable for you with that introduction. Surely you're, you're dying to hear what it is that people want to avoid all the time. So let me read verses 1 through 9. I'll pray for us, and then we're just going to walk through it together and seek to understand what Jesus was saying in his day and then apply that to our lives today. Hear now God's word from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought, were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I have heard about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from mismanagement, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we're here with your book open before us, but we are befuddled by what it says. We pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit and that you would be our teacher, and that you would give us understanding of this story that you told. And I pray that you would help us to not only understand the point that you're making, but that we would see how to apply this very ancient story from another culture to our lives today. Please come and do that now, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's work to understand what this means, and then we'll make the application in our lives. Let's start right there in verse 1. Notice that we're told he also said to the disciples. Now, what is a disciple? That is a follower of Jesus. And who is it that's drawing near to Jesus at this time? Well, if you, keep, if you go back a little bit, you know, these chapter divisions weren't put here until the fourth century, so don't let that distract you. If you go back and read in Luke 15, the beginning in verse 1, we're told the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So those are the disciples, those are the ones who are following, who are responding to Jesus, the tax collectors and the sinners in Luke 15 and verse 1. And remember, the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and complaining, saying, this man eats with sinners and welcomes them. And then it was to the Pharisees and to the scribes that Jesus told those three parables we looked at two weeks ago, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the point he's making to those folks who are saying, I can't believe Jesus is receiving all this riffraff, and Jesus is saying, Look, you don't understand. God in heaven rejoices when a sinner repents and returns to him, just like the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one sheep and brings him back rejoices, just like the woman who lost the coin finds it and then rejoices, just like the man who had a wayward son who left comes back home, he throws a party and rejoices. And so Jesus is saying the correct response by the people of God ought to be to rejoice when lost sinners repent, and he's telling that to the Pharisees and the scribes. Now in Luke 16 and verse 1, he's talking to the disciples, those who are following him, those who are turning to him, the tax collectors and the sinners that the Pharisees were grumbling about. So however we interpret this, it needs to make sense that Jesus is telling this story to those who are following him, to these tax collectors and these sinners. So let's keep that in mind. This is written to the disciples. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. We need to understand the context to hear what he's saying here. Notice also how similar this parable is to the parable of the prodigal son. Did you catch that? That's the parable he's just told to the Pharisees to say, hey, you're the elder brother. You're coming in from the field where you've been working. There's a party going on. Are you going to come into the party and rejoice that the lost center has come home and repented? Or are you going to stay out here and be angry? He's just told that to the Pharisees. Now he's talking to those who are following him. But there's such similarity between this parable and the one that he's just told. Both have an ungrateful wayward son or a steward who wastes the master or the father's resources. This word you see there in 16.1, uh, the, the charges were that he had wasted his possessions. It's the same word where we get prodigal. In chapter 15 and verse 13, we're told that the prodigal son squandered his father's property. Um, He also wasted, it's the same word, that he wasted resources. Both of these guys face hardship, the famine for the prodigal son, being fired for the manager. Both of them face a hardship that causes them to come to their senses or to have this moment of truth when they devise a plan that they're going to go talk to their superior. That happens in both stories. Notice that both of these men throw themselves on the mercy of the master or throw themselves on the mercy of the father. And each has a master or a father who shows extraordinary grace. So we see these similarities. So there's got to be something consistent with the prodigal son that Jesus is saying to these tax collectors and sinners who are following him. Now notice that charges were brought, To the superior that this man was wasting his resources it must have been from somebody the master trusted or there was overwhelming evidence because there's no investigation right there's no hey let me look into what's going on he just calls the manager in to fire him immediately you see it there in verse two right and he called him in and said to him what is this i hear about you now let's talk about that for a minute kids you need to watch this because this guy's shrewd okay right you can learn from him Parents, teachers, you know, we do this sometimes, right? We'll ask a question, hey, what is this I'm hearing about you? And then you wait on the person to tell what it is they think they're in trouble for. And sometimes they'll confess to some stuff you didn't even know about, right? And you get more information than what you had before, right? Yes, I confess that I robbed the bank. Well, we were really interviewing you for the the murder that we've got you on film doing, but we'll get you for bank robbery too, Right? So he asked the question, what is this I'm hearing about you? But the manager's too shrewd. He doesn't give him any more information, right? So he says, what is this I've heard about you in verse 2? And then he doesn't get any more information, so he just says, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. Now, the original audience would be thinking, wow, wow. He's not asked to balance the books. He's not asked to give an account. He's just fired immediately. Just turn in the books. You're out of here, right? And the original audience would be expecting some kind of negotiation. Hey, can I get some severance, right? Maybe, hey, my family has served your family for generations? Are you just going to dismiss me that way? Maybe some blame shifting, right? I've done the best that I could, but these other people who work for you waste your stuff like crazy. Maybe some blame shifting. Maybe bring in the liar who has made these charges against me and see if he'll make them to my face. I mean, you're expecting some kind of protest and there is none. And no protest from this manager tells us these charges must be true. And he's fired immediately. And he's told to go get the account books to turn them in. So he's been fired, but he still has the books. And he's going to get them to turn them in. And he wonders what he's going to do next. Look at verse 3. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. Okay, you hear what's going on here, right? He's thinking, what am I going to do? Whatever it is he's doing, his motivation is he's trying to do something so that when he loses this job people will receive him into their homes. Basically, he's saying, I'm hoping to manage somebody else's household. When he says, receive me into their homes, he's talking about getting another job where he's managing someone's estate. But if he's fired from this estate for mismanagement, I suppose it's going to be tough for him to get a job managing somebody else's estate, right? And so he devises this plan. He wants to be shrewd, which means clever. He wants to be smart and do something to become popular with other people so that they will like him. So they'll say, this is a smart fellow, and he's helped me out, so I will hire him. That's what he's trying to do. So let's see what he does. Verse 5 through 7. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? You would think maybe a good manager would know how much was owed. Maybe this is part of the problem. But he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. So he's cutting the debt in half, right? He's saying, look, let's arrange it where you only owe 50. So this person is going to be happy with him that he slashed the debt that is owed. Then he said to another in verse seven, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, I don't know why that guy only gets a 20% discount and the other one got a 50%. I mean, the guy mismanages things, right? He's dishonest. We've established that, but that's what he does. Now, you would think after being caught wasting resources, the man would apologize and repent. But instead, he just wastes more stuff. He just wastes even more. But he's shrewd. He's clever about what he does. He meets individually with each debtor. Notice it says he met with them one by one. That's so he could work out separate deals. One person got 50% off, one person only got 20, right? Maybe he wanted to work for that other guy more than this one. But he takes them one by one, and he makes separate deals with them. But the distinction between public meetings and private meetings is important too. Publicly, the one who got the deal can always say, I thought he had authority to make this deal. When privately, the guy's probably said, hey, listen, I'm helping you out, and when I'm gone from here, you need to help me out, right? So there's this public-private distinction. Publicly, there would have been witnesses to what was going on. Privately, if the debtor disagreed with him and decides that they're going to report things to his superior, the guy can say, look, it's just that he misunderstood what I meant. There are no witnesses to contradict him. I mean, this guy's already dishonest, right? Right. Or if the person agrees with him in private, right, then they can't report him to the manager because they want to get the deal. Notice he has them make the deal in their handwriting. So it's not something he did, but something that these debtors agreed to in writing. So he's got them kind of, uh, they, they're, they're in this thing too, And then publicly, the debtors would go back home, and I'm sure they would share the good news with family and friends, and they would celebrate and be in a festive mood because the generous master has reduced their debts all at the behest of this shrewd manager that they've made a deal with. That's what's going on here. So look in verses 8 and 9, the master finds out what's going on. You would expect the master who's already fired him, maybe he's going to get beheaded now or something, right? And that's not what happens. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd, more clever in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. There's a play on words there. In verse four, the guy had said, I'm doing this so that I will be received into their houses later. And Jesus is saying, there's something you need to do or that you should do so that you're received into eternal dwellings. So he's still making a reference back to the parable. That's why I include verse nine as commentary on what's going on because it makes direct reference to what Jesus has just said. Now, here's the question. Why would the master commend this dishonest steward for his shrewdness? Well, basically, the master has two options, right? He's got two things he can do here. Number one, he can go to the debtors and explain, look, these reductions were not authorized That steward had been fired when he made the deal, so he had no legal right to make those reductions in your debt, so you're going to have to pay the original amount in full, and all their rejoicing that they've been doing because of the generosity of the master will turn to grumbling. That guy's a jerk. I can't believe he did this. Right. That's one option. His second option, the one that he obviously takes is that he remains quiet, he enjoys his reputation as a generous man, and he says, okay, (laughs) he got me, right? He was true. That was clever. I see what you're doing there. You cut everybody's debt so that you can find a place to land after I fire you. You know, I tip the cap to that, right? That is what he does. And the master is gracious, He fired the guy, but you know, he could have jailed him. He could have put him and his whole family in jail as debtors until he was paid what the guy had stolen or wasted from him. But all he had done is fired him. He said, go get the books. And then right here, he could have really gotten the guy in trouble, and he doesn't. He just stays quiet. It was a daring plan on the part of the steward, of the manager, and it worked. And it worked because the master was generous and gracious, and he knew the master was generous and gracious, and that's why he did what he did. That's what he was counting on. So what is praiseworthy about this manager? What is praiseworthy about this steward? He's being praised here not for his dishonesty, but he's being praised for taking clever action when it was necessary. Look what he did. His morals are awful, but he's smart enough to know that he needed to act. He needed to do something, and his only hope was to put his trust in the grace and mercy of a generous and gracious master, and it worked. Because the master is generous and gracious. That's what's going on here. And the master pays the price for this guy's mistakes, right? He has to absorb those losses. So the master pays the price for the servant's sins, And the servant is not praised because he's ethical or because he's moral. He's praised because he accurately perceived the nature of his master, and he acted based on that. And he's extended grace by only being fired instead of being jailed, by not having the whistle blown on him. And he risked it all, knowing the nature of the master, knowing that the master was gracious and generous, that that was his nature and that's his identity and that's his character. That's what's going on in the story. So what's the point Jesus is making? What is he saying to these tax collectors and sinners who are beginning to follow him, right? What's he saying to them? He's saying, look, the sons of this world... Recognize that their morals are awful. They recognize they've got to do something. God's here in the person and work of Jesus. This requires some kind of action. They have come to their senses and they realize they have to do something. They must take action. And he's saying the right thing to do is to trust in the grace and mercy of a generous master in order to make plans to land in a good place in the future. Jesus is saying that his arrival calls for action, repentance. That's what the three parables before this were about. It calls for a change in direction. Jesus is saying even dishonest worldly people know when the jig is up. They know when they're caught. They know when they've got to do something drastic to take action in order to try to fix things. And he's saying, how much more should those who follow Jesus be willing to take decisive action, relying on, counting on, the character of the master, knowing that he's gracious, knowing that he's generous? I mean, what are the three stories Jesus just told? That when lost, sinners repent, heaven rejoices that if they turn from their ways and turn back, that the shepherd joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders, that the woman calls her neighbors and rejoices, that the father is watching for the lost son to come back, and that he bestows all the benefits of being a son on him and has a party, and the party he's looking for in the world he finds at home with his father. And so Jesus is saying, listen, You ought to boldly act on what you have been hearing. You know, it's interesting to me that he's talking to tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors, specifically people who have gotten rich off taking other people's money, and he tells them a story about a steward who made money by taking things from somebody else that wasn't his. This story is directed right at those guys, and he's saying, rely on the grace of God. He rejoices at repentance. Now, how does this apply to us? We're not shrewd managers being dismissed from our job. This seems, I'm not a tax collector uh, in the Roman Empire. This seems far away. Well, let's think about that. We are all facing an impending dismissal, right? Right? We're not being dismissed from our jobs. We will all at some point be dismissed from this world. We will leave this place if the Lord tarries. We'll be dismissed from this world. And none of us has managed things well. We have all mismanaged the resources God has given us, our talents and gifts. We haven't used them for the Lord 100% of the time, 100% of what we have and all that we are. We haven't used our time and our money. We haven't used the resources he's given us in the way that we should. We've all mismanaged things, and we know it. (laughs) There's no blame shifting. There's no bluffing. We know we have mismanaged the resources God has given us. And Jesus is calling us to take decisive action to admit that we're wrong, and see that our only hope is to put our trust in the grace and the mercy of a generous master. But I have good news for you this morning. Our master is gracious, and merciful, and loving, and kind, and patient, and he rejoices when we turn to him. Our master loves us so much that he's been willing to pay the price for our sin so that we can be received into eternal dwellings. So the message for us is the same for them. Turn to God. Rely on his mercy and grace. If worldly people who do dishonest things are willing to bank on to trust in the graciousness of their master. How much more should people who know and have experienced the character of God be quick to repent, be quick to turn from other things to him because he is so loving and merciful and kind and he rejoices when we come back to him. So let's do that early often. Let's be quicker to repent as the people of God. Let me pray for us and ask him to help us do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. We are thankful for the story, not because it's so easy to understand, but because it reminds us of what you are like. It reminds us of your goodness and grace and generosity. It reminds us that we're foolish not to turn from other things and to run to you and to build our life on, to depend on the mercy and grace that you extend to broken and messed up people. We thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.